Hello and welcome to the Mindful Family Business. My name is Russ Hayworth and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Martin Stepek. In each episode, we will be exploring and learning about the ancient teachings of mindfulness and how we can apply these to situations within our family business. We are also offering access to a program that takes what we speak about and applies it to your own family business. More details of that at the end of the show. But for now, take a breath, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi Martin, how are you today? Hi Ross, I'm good. Um, it's been a good day, it's been a good week, a busy week, and my week is generally around a helping people, which is its own reward on the one hand, and relaxing and doing things that keep me focused and sane. So on both fronts, it's been a good week. Fantastic, good to hear. And we are going to be talking about the second of the four noble truths today. But perhaps rather than jumping straight into those, for, for the benefits of people who may be picking this up as their first um, experience of, of what it is that we're, we're capturing. Could you provide a, an overview of, of the, the Four Noble Truths, why we're looking at that as the starting point of, of the discussions when we're, we're having these conversations? Sure. These are essentially a formula that the young man who later became known as the Buddha formulated in order to summarise what he had learned about human mind and and happiness. And so he put it into two clumps, if you like. One is the four noble truths, which is a really bad translation. The real translation should be something along the lines of the four truths that ennoble you, or the four truths that make you a fuller person. And then the fourth of those truths is the how to do it, which then becomes the eightfold path, which are eight aspects of your psyche, aspects of your personality, your behaviours that you can develop and focus on in order to get to this stage of being able to live a, a richer, happier life. And last time we covered the first noble truth, which was essentially saying that, yeah, life can be good, but there's a lot of suffering in it. There's a lot of dissatisfaction, some frustrations, irritations, and these come and go through life. So we explored that and the importance to recognise that not just intellectually, but actually to embed it and almost like to reflect on it and to develop it inside ourselves so that we've got a more realistic view about life, which means that when negatives happen, we're, we're not shocked by it, which quite often we seem to be just now, mm. you know, in life, you, you go on and no matter how many bad things have happened in your life, you still think everything's going to be rosy in the future, yeah. which uh, is setting you up for another fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the, the big things I took away from um, our last um, conversation as well was around the fact that mindfulness practices such as noticing our breath and focusing on that in order to try and create uh, clarity and, and clearness of mind is, is only a kind of a, a small element of actual mindful living and mindful thinking. 
but but it is as you say a, a practice to to help um to do that and I, I hope from what we're recording in terms of the the background as to, to how mindfulness came to, to be is helping people explore that with their own circumstances and and to to put that in, into practice in their own lives yes uh, it's hugely important because the way mindfulness in its modern scientific secular um, basis was formulated was both a great thing and problematic. It was a great thing because it was researched by a doctor, a medical doctor in America, John Kabat-Zinn, and followed up by neuroscientists and psychologists who were taking these ancient practices from Buddhism primarily, and they were checking them out because they found that it was helping them as individuals and they thought, this maybe could work for my patients or my clients. And so they started doing proper scientific research on them, so random controlled tests, um, and found that these practices actually help people. Kabat-Zinn was a specialist and is a specialist in psoriasis. And so this was even with people who have got physical ailments. And he was finding them they were reporting that they were, it was helping them. It was reported that their lesions were clearing up more quickly. So that's the plus side of mindfulness. There's a big, huge, huge, big tick. It's no longer just, I say it works, mm-hmm. but here's some actual scientific evidence that shows that it works for many, many people. So that's great because that then took it from being a, a kind of esoteric, out there sort of thing to all of a sudden, this can work in the mainstream of society and the mainstream of individuals' lives. So that was great, but it came as a, a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was there's a whole huge philosophical and ethical underpinning of mindfulness um, that wasn't ditched for the new scientific method, but the new scientific method had to be easily enumerated and replicated. Because if you, it's a bit like, you know, my son's in, pharma, in the scientific side of pharmaceuticals, you know, and if you just do a different pill each time with different elements, you know, you're not going to get a consistent result. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with mindfulness. So Kabat-Zinn taught a very strict summary of parts of mindfulness. And so that if they showed that people could benefit from that, then all you need to do is do the same thing for someone else and someone else. But what gets lost in that is the complexity of thinking that the original teachings that included mindfulness brought. And I think that when you look at that full side of things within which mindfulness sits, then the benefits that you reap are so much deeper and so much more fundamentally successful. And for me... When I, I first started learning about mindfulness from Tibetan Buddhists for six years and then went on to the secular scientific research once it started coming through through in Britain. And when I was asked to become a teacher with the, with the Buddhists, it was um, psychology, ethics and the philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, that's, they all form a package and without any element of it, something gets lost. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I think by us 
covering the teachings and discussing that and then bringing that to life through say family business scenarios is is hopefully helping to to embed it as a a way of thinking and and as a philosophy for for people that are listening Um, and with that in mind as you mentioned we covered the first um, noble truth uh, which is the inevitability of suffering in our last conversation Um, so it seems appropriate to to move in order and and talk about the the second um, of those noble truths so could you sort of explain what that what it is and, and what it means and then we can perhaps talk about uh, scenarios that that could come up uh, within family businesses and, and our daily lives that we can perhaps recognise a bit more. Sure. The second noble truth is stated is essentially the cause of all our sufferings are thirst. That was the translation from the ancient texts, um, Pali and other Indian um, language and Sanskrit, which is still a current Indian language. The thirst is essentially our wants, our desires. And when it was analysed by the Buddha, he basically said that there are wants in our lives that are about no longer having something negative in our life. So So we're feeling ill or we've got a heart condition. We want to be healthy. But wanting to be healthy is wanting rid of something that already exists. So that's a want, it's a thirst for a change from a negative to a better situation. And then there's the what we'd call positive thirsts. We want happiness for our children. We want health for you know our parents. Um, so there's, there's the negatives we want rid of in life because they make us unhappy. And there's the wants that we don't yet have in our life because they will make us happy. Uh And that's this idea that we want, it's our wants fulfilled that make us happy. And he was analysing this in his own head and he says, no, that's the wrong approach. These things are what causes, the lack of getting satisfied is what causes our lack of happiness. It's what causes the suffering. Uh So if we take that into, and, and I may have, have misunderstood in terms of the kind of negative one versus a, a positive one, it is the idea to to try and frame things in a more positive sense and aspire towards positive wants? Do, do, does, is it as simplistic as, as saying if we we want things in a positive sense and it, it helps us to become happier and more fulfilled or is, is it not quite as, as simplistic as I've made out? It is deeper than that. There's a fundamental challenge to our whole way of thinking in, in that. If he's saying this is the problem, our wants are the problem, it's not getting satisfied by the good stuff that we want. So a new car, a Rolls Royce, you know, a holiday, you know, in, in, in the sun. What he's essentially saying is we need to manage and reduce our desires. So we, with negative ones, say we've got a heart condition. Well, we're getting treated as best we can, 
there is no point in wanting rid of the heart condition if it's a fact of your life and you're getting as much treatment as you can. The wanting it is just causing you dissatisfaction. Accepting it causes you satisfaction. You can you accept the reality of your situation. So it's a psychological shift from, oh, I wish, oh, I wish, oh, I wish, to I'm okay with this mm. because I can't change it for the better. And on the plus side, and I think this is really interesting and important for family businesses, which is about growth and materialism and consumerism and wanting more and more stuff or more and more brilliant experiences, is that there is no end to that desire. You know, that whole concept of I want more. Well, if you want more, you'll never be happy because there'll always be more that you want. And this ability to, as Marcus Aurelius, the great Roman emperor, one of the great moral Roman emperors, I'd say one of the great few moral Roman emperors, mm-hmm. but I don't know about history enough to see if that's fair. Anyway, Marcus Aurelius fought in many war campaigns and he saw a lot of the brutality of life, but he was an incredibly wise, decent thinking person. And one time after a battle, and you imagine him going back to this tent, kind of bloodied, but he was in the big tent, and he starts writing down his notes, his wee private um, meditations, as he called it. And he wrote once that, you know, remember, Marcus, how little it requires to have a full, satisfied life. Mm-hmm. Full stop. This is an emperor talking this, you know. Have you got enough food? Mm. Have you got enough clothing? Have you got enough shelter? Have you got your health? Then what more do you want? Mm. Now, that's a big, big challenge in a consumer society. That's a big, big challenge in a world, that, a human world that says we must have everlasting economic growth. And, of course, we have seen the, the psychological as well as the environmental consequences of that mentality. Hmm. And what mindfulness, what the teachings from which mindfulness derive is saying is that the solution is to have fewer wants. The solution isn't to try and satisfy all the ones that you've got in your mind. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, we've... Um... This reminds me of a conversation that, that we had uh, quite, quite a while ago that in terms of how we measure and define success, um, particularly for nations, we, we seem to measure it in GDP, i.e. the, the production, the, the growth of the almost the consumer side of things is the measure of how successful a, a, a whole country is being and us as, a, as an economy, whereas... I think there's a shift, particularly in some countries, to focus much more on measures of true happiness rather than just pure consumption. And I think part of um, p- perhaps adopting a more mindful um, philosophy or approach to, to life would be to, to define what it is that, that makes you happy and then focus on that side in, in terms of how much do you actually need to, to live. To, to put on the table, uh, food on the table, and to to have a, a roof over your head and, and care for your family and, and spend time with those that you love, rather than saying, "Well, I need a bigger car or a bigger house," or 
you know, a bigger telly and, and that's going to define my success. And when I get there, there's always somebody with a telly that's bigger than yours or someone who's, who's got a bigger car and it just continues the cycle of that kind of um, unhealthy wants, I guess. Yes, and I think it's, it's such a deep challenge to our way of life because not only do we talk about you know, GDP and economic growth as desirable, we effectively have a machine of the economy that can't function if it's not doing that. Because if we, as things currently stand in, in the structure that has evolved gradually over, over decades and centuries, if we all started to become, quotation marks, wise and stop buying a whole lot of stuff, you'd have three, four million people unemployed within weeks and months. You know, so growth and consumerism is the very beating heart of the system. And what the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago was saying, that might be true, but it doesn't make you happy. And in fact, there's arguments to say it makes you unhappy. That was his point. It, this is a machine that keeps you dissatisfied. And if you look at some of the critiques of marketing and advertising, especially consumer marketing over the last five decades, they're essentially all saying the same thing, that they are taking people's positions who are currently satisfied with something and they're sending messages out to you say, you can't be satisfied with that hoover that you've got because it doesn't do this that this new hoover does <laughs> and therefore you should be so unhappy that you need to buy this one to make you happy. Mm. Now that's simplistic but it's, it is in essence is to point out potential dissatisfactions in your life and say we promise we'll fulfil those. Mm. And and so I, in terms of the type of practices that people can can do in order to 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 avoid this it, it, or, or to be at least be aware of it um again I, d I don't know the the science behind things like gratitude um practices where you you effectively say what you're grateful for and, and think and contemplate on what it is that you're grateful for is, is that a way to to combat this kind of societal pressure of constantly striving for better hoovers and and you know all the other stuff that, that you say the marketeers throw at us because um, our life would be so much better if it picked up an extra mi microgram of dust every year or whatever the, the selling uh, of that product is yeah, I think if, if you think of it in th at three levels, one is you as an individual or perhaps you as an individual and your immediate family, you know, you, your partner, your spouse, your children. That's one level. Second level, you know, in terms of our context is us as a family business. And the third level is us as a society. So at the highest level, Unless you're in a real position of power, then there's not a lot you can do about changing the whole structure of society and our economic system. You can, of course, vote in a certain way. You can, of course, choose to try to influence society in a certain way. 
But that's hard. That's a hard shift to do. And maybe that's waves of generations and certainly the, you know, what's called the rising generation, the younger generation are much more focused on doing that because they've been raised in to think that way in a way that previous generations hadn't. So the societal thing's a bit big and we maybe come to that another time. In terms of the individual and the family business, well, first of all, as we all know, you know, it's it takes some work to make sure that family members are in harmony, ethically in harmony, practically in harmony, and decision-making in harmony. But one of the things does beg the question of what are we for in this family business? And if we have an inkling that just wanting more and more and more stuff is not a route for human satisfaction, then it can start to maybe ask us to have constructive, long-term questions about where do we then fit in this? And this, as us then, as the individual, society at either ends and the meat in the sandwich is the family business. How can we have our own ethical perspective on what is right and how to live a good life and therefore how to feel satisfied that our contribution to society via the family business is one that satisfies something deep in us. That's a big exploration. Mm -hmm. But if you take it back to the individual, then I guess the question is, for me practically, to reflect. How do I live my life just now? How did I come to have the possessions I have? Do they give me real satisfaction or are they just a, almost like a happenstance or lucky result of me wanting something one day? Mm. You know, I want something one day. I've got loads of money. I'll buy it. Boom. Mm-hmm. And the most um, obvious version of that, I think, is is clothing, you know, that we now live in a fast-moving sort of fashion culture, you know, where the, the retailers, where they used to have a seasonal, you know, spring, summer, autumn, winter change of clothing, and now it's like every four weeks or every six weeks mm-hmm. to keep on enticing customers to come in. And, of course, we are all customers as well. So we go in and, that's a nice jumper, that's a nice dress, boom, it's only 25 quid. Oh, it's reduced mm. and you just buy it. And then you're really excited because it's nice and it's beautiful. And then you hang it up and three weeks later, you've forgotten you've bought it. You haven't tried it on. You've got another 14 identically beautiful <laughs> other sort of jumpers, shirts, um, suits or whatever. And you've hardly used any of them. So it's it's you buying on impulse something pretty, but not buying for real purpose. Mm. And if we can look at the way we live our lives mentally in terms of the likes of consumption, but it's not just consumption, it's even success, that definition of success. Is success having a million pounds? Is success having a million pounds, but you're divorced twice because 
you haven't even spoken to your partner because you were too busy trying to get a million pounds. Mm-hmm. It's really looking at those questions about what is propelling me? And that's what he meant by thirst. Mm. What is propelling me? What is making me want an end to certain things? What is making me want to have certain things? And in essence, there's a great quote, which if you and I have probably said it to you about half a dozen times. Einstein said, everything should be as simple as possible, but not simpler. Mm-hmm. So if you are cutting down on your consumption, cutting down on your desires, but you start cutting down on the fact that you, what you eat, then you've gone too far. Uh-huh. I don't think many of our listeners will go that far, <laughs> but it is, it's, it's this idea, and the Buddha coined the idea of the middle path, not a path of luxury and extreme sort of wealth, not a path of sort of doing yourself down and extreme poverty and trying to gain sort of happiness through that. There's something in the middle that we that nearly all people can get to and it's it's the wisdom and the training of the mind to say, that's enough. Living like this is enough. Mm. We can be completely happy, completely satisfied and completely secure. And to stop the mind going, yeah, but what about the next thing? Yeah. One of the phrases you used um, there as well was around a real purpose. And I think one of the benefits one of the many benefits of family businesses is they're not held to account by external shareholders who are just owning the business to grow that profit to grow their financial returns from that that's not to say that it shouldn't be profitable but the the beauty of being in business with your family is that you are able to to create a business that has real purpose at its center and that might forego profit for the sake of profit and, and that, you know, you won't get 20% growth. You might get smaller levels of, of growth because you're focusing on doing the right things and having a really positive impact on those that work within the business, the supply chain of that business, the customers of that business. And then we start seeing the positive impact at a societal level that is driven from a business that has a very clear idea of its purpose and what it's there to do. And uh, again, being a, a layman on this in terms of the, the understanding, my guess is that that can bring levels of satisfaction and happiness to those within the family business away from the kind of the consumer-led sort of happiness or striving towards happiness that, that we've spoken about there. Do you think that's a fair... I mean, it sounds idealistic in some respects, but it is the the kind of power and, and um, what, or the power that a, a family business can bring. Yeah, I think that's that's a fundamental point about family business and the, the uniqueness. You have the power to decide your own purpose, whether that's a short-term purpose or whether it's a big long-term vision. One of the really interesting things is goes around money, you know. What I've found in my own life and in my family business life was frugality. Getting, being happy with less is fundamentally satisfying. Fundamentally brings contentment and a sense of peace. 
not wanting the next thing, not wanting the next thing. That doesn't mean you don't need the right amount of money in the family business as a system. First of all, you'd probably either have siblings or parents or children because it's a family business and they need their financial lives to be secure and reasonable compared to, to what the, the business can afford. We also all need to be secure in our old age, and that's where a big chunk can be had to be has to be considered, you know, because people are living longer now, and therefore how much you put in and when you put money in to your pension pot, it, it's hugely important in terms of feeling that you've got enough for your old age. And so that, that therefore means that we should be thinking about security. Security is a legitimate thing to think about and it takes a lot of money to secure someone's pen, pension in old age. How much you earn is also, to at least a greater or lesser extent, influenced by the market. How much you would get that job in another company, how much someone on the outside coming in to the family business is expecting to earn. And if you have a position, say it's just off the top of my head, 50 grand a year, and you're earning 50,000 pounds a year, and you get a person coming in at your level, but from the outside, and he's saying 75,000 pounds a year, because that's where what his last job had, then you start to think, oh, why is mine so low? So there's that whole feeling, and then therefore are you influenced that way? But on the other hand, if you're finding it that you're on the £75,000 because it's a family business and you're just taking money out of the business because you can, and you hire someone else and you realise that actually the market rate's 45000 50000 then you have a question mark on the legitimacy of how much you can take. Now, as Russ said, you know, you have this freedom to do that. It's your business after all. But there are consequences to playing around too much with market norms in terms of salaries. I guess the other thing is all the perks that come often with a family business, depending on you know the, the, the trade, the business that you're in. We were in electrical retail, so we had customers like Panasonic, Toshiba, Samsung, etc. All brilliant global companies based in the Far East. And so they would say, anyone want to go to Tokyo for a week? You know, anyone want to go to Seoul and Korea, f- you know, for a week? And of course, in my situation, my wife was a school teacher, so we couldn't go on any of these because they were all off peak, the holidays. Mm-hmm. Now that could then make you grasp, that's not fair on me. So there's a whole world of dissatisfaction in a family business setting that could be based on, I want, I want, I want. But the final thing is, of course, a business needs in the long run, not necessarily every year, but in the long run, it needs to be profitable because if in the long run it's not profitable, no one will back you financially and you'll run out of cash and cash flow, as we all know, is king, Mm -hmm. and you will go bust. And so you need to be financially savvy about this. So you need a certain amount of money. You have to work that out. Your old age needs a certain amount of money. You have to work that out. But the business needs a certain amount of money to make sure you feel it's secure 
and, and ongoing. What it doesn't necessarily mean is you don't have to grow all the time. I mean, we went from having 20 shops to a, to a vision of having 300 and odd shops. Um, now, we didn't need 300 and odd shops, and we had family splits about that, family that wanted the community, the community that we knew, the geographical community, to be our purpose. And other ones who were saying, no, no, we can make this, we can replicate this forever. Difficult decisions. Mm. Yeah, and they, they will be um, circumstances and scenarios that will be repeated all over the world in, in family businesses in, in that sense. And I guess what we're, uh, the message I hope we're, we're trying to get across in terms of of looking at that and how, how to look at that is to, to recognise that there is this world out there that is creating these wants and, and um, desires for, for, for us and, and the thirst, as you referred to or, as, or would have referred to it, um, and being aware of that and trying to shift our thinking around that. And, and I think that that is hard work, right? That's not something that you can just go, well, I'm going to change how I feel tomorrow and that that's just, just shift your thinking on it. It's going to be something that is going to take work over time through practice around that way of thinking. Yep, and I think a good analogy for that is if I viewed the books on my bookshelves 25 years ago, comparing the books in my bookshelves now, you would see that 25 years ago, it was all about personal development, management development, leadership, how to grow your business, da-da-da, think and grow rich, all that sort of stuff. If you look at my bookshelves now, it'll all be ancient texts or modern commentaries on ancient texts. You know, what the Buddha taught, the book of Chuang Tzu, you know, opening the hand of thought. Books about how the mind works and what a proper role of an individual is in a society. And this understanding that It's a lifetime quest to manage the mind. It's not something you get done in six months, you take that box and say, yep, that's me perfect now. <laughs> and the reason it's a lifetime quest is because the mind is not just our society that impels us to want stuff and want an end to stuff we don't like. It's innate. You know, It's a program in our genes. We want more. And we constantly want more because there's never enough if the world is so insecure. We also want more to be able to show off to people around us, say, look at us, we've got more. There's a kind of ego thing that's built up, it's built in the system. So this work that we have to do to be satisfied, because none of those impulses make you satisfied, they just keep you on the treadmill of, of wants. But if we want out of that treadmill, then we have to work against the grain of our own impulses. And that's where mindfulness comes in. It's noticing the impulses, noticing the reaction, noticing the reactivity of our core being, and then saying, whoa, better pause this. This is not helping mm. at any given moment. See? Right, and that's the in-breath, nice and clear. Good, get rid of that stupid thought. Out-breath. Oh, I feel better now. Okay, I don't need five new pairs of shoes today. Mm -hmm. 
Fantastic. Um, in our next conversation, we're going to be exploring the third noble truth. Um, as a, a kind of a preview to, to that, perhaps we could give uh, the audience a bit of a taster as to, to what that is and, and maybe some of the things we'll discuss in the next show. Yeah, it's to me, looking at it from a secular point of view, but I grew up in a Christian family, as, as many, probably most of the people, and in, in certainly in the United Kingdom did. And the great story was redemption. That Jesus born, crucified, and rose from the dead in order to liberate us from suffering. So same sort of argument. Now, obviously, people who are religious listening to it have their own perspective on that, and that's absolutely valid and important that, that you do so. But the third noble truth is essentially the Buddha's version of that. And in Buddhism, there was no idea of a god. The Buddha didn't believe in a creator at all. He thought the universe was infinite going back in time and very much in alignment with modern science in that regard. And what he said was, you can get out of this cycle of constant dissatisfaction. So the first noble truth is there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of frustration. You're not satisfied with your life. You're not at peace with being alive. And it's caused by all these wants and all this yearning for things, bad things to end. And he's saying, you can get out of that way of thinking. You, the same things can be thought, but you're not being trapped by them. You can dissociate your automatic way of thinking from how you then respond to life. And it, to me, is, is the great secular message of hope that, yeah, you can do this regardless of circumstances. And one of the beauties, and we'll explore this, um, I'm sure, next time, is that we have seen this happen in real life in our lifetimes. People who have been like Terry Waite, who you know, was captured and kidnapped for five years and kept sort of ransom uh, for ransom, and he eventually got out, and when he was asked about it, as were the others who were kidnapped with him, he said, you, you work out how to cope. You work out how to be happy and satisfied despite being in an unbearable situation. And so we know that this is feasible, this is possible. The question is, can we work at it sufficiently? Um, as, as my dad once said, who, who was also in a labour camp, um, and I was discussing things with him about people not understanding what a lot of other people have to go through in life. He says, Martin, you don't want everyone to be in a labour camp just to find out how to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully there's a, a gentler way we'll explore of doing that. Absolutely. And I'm very much looking forward uh, to exploring that uh, on the, the next episode. It is our firm belief that it is healthy for your business, your family as a whole, and each individual involved to learn how to develop a fresh, more objective perspective of the situation each of you is in, so that clearer aims, hopes, and visions can be explored together in a positive, respectful, and constructive manner. Martin and I have created the Mindful Family Business Programme to help you with this, 
If you'd like to find out more about this, please head to familybusinesspartnership.com forward slash mindful for more information. Or you can email me, russ at familybusinesspartnership.com. We really hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please feel free to share it with your family. And you can even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, take care.